All right, good evening, everyone. It's good to see everyone here this evening. Came out on Super Bowl Sunday, so there's potential that you might miss the start of it. Sorry. Um, apologize in advance for that. I think, I'll, I think I'll keep it all in line. We got an hour. We got plenty of time. So, yeah, we should be good. Should be. That's the operative word there. Should be good. Well, I'm getting myself organized. We are in the midst of week two of four, um, a short series just through topically some of the different themes and topics we've been seeing in the book of Romans. Last week, if you were here, if you were recall, we were in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and Chris specifically was preaching on how not to apply that to people's lives, how not to, how not to use that verse, particularly with people who struggle with suffering or struggling in particular ways, not to really beat them up with Scripture. And today, tonight, we're going to be pulling a theme out of Romans 8 again, Romans 8, verse 15, and it's the idea of fear. Um, fear is... Probably the most common emotion that we experience in our lives. Um, it is something that we experience in very different ways. The fears that I have are very different from the fears that you have. And they're, they're very different. They're exclusive for individuals. The, the deepest fears of my heart are not the deepest fears of your heart. And they, they can change and evolve based on what our experiences are. Uh, when I was a young child, I've, I've mentioned this to a couple of different people before, when I was a little kid, four, five, six years old, for whatever reason, my, my parents didn't have much of a problem with me watching horror movies at the time. Surprisingly, you're like, what in the world? You're letting a five-year-old watch horror movies. So I, I can recall being five, watching my first horror movie, and it wasn't that intense. It was, how many of you remember the, the miniseries It? It's the Stephen King novel turned into a miniseries. They just did another movie about it. Um, so it wasn't that bad. It's a killer clown going around murdering little children. Um, great, great things for a five-year-old to be reading about and listening about. Um, but I, I, I watched a number of them. The Halloween series, Friday the 13th. And I can recall many nights going to bed and had this routine where I was going to make sure that I was completely covered the covers were over top of every part of my body except for my head. My head was allowed to stay out. You couldn't have a hand hanging over the side of the bed. You couldn't have a foot outside of the covers because if you did, Pennywise the Clown was going to come and get you. And so this is me, five, six years old. And it worked well until I saw Nightmare on Elm Street. And if you're familiar with that, Freddy gets you while you sleep. So I was like, okay, I can't go to sleep anymore. So there I am, six years old, terrified because I'm, my parents, for whatever reason, let me watch crazy movies. And so that's, a, that's the, the fear of a five to 10 year old kid watching movies he probably shouldn't be watching, horror movies that probably are not helpful for him, but those fears that we have, whether they're the innocent fears of a five year old who's struggling because he watched a horror movie, or they're the deepest fears of our soul, deepest fears that we have in our heart are present and they're real, and they continue to influence and affect how we live. The experiences that we have lead into and produce these fears in our lives that affect how we live and the things that we do. And there's, there's hundreds of them. 
Like I said, they're all different for all of us. My experiences lead myself to my fears and your experiences lead and produce fears in your lives. There's tons of different phobias if you go through the list. Arachnophobia. There's probably tons of people in here who are afraid of spiders. Claustrophobia. You're, you don't like being in tight, confined, small spaces. There's probably a number in here that are like that. Agoraphobia, the fear of being in crowded places. You don't want to go outside. You don't want to be around a ton of people. So there's all these fears. Some of them are relatively minor fears that we have in our lives. Some that maybe we get teased about. Um, I have a family member of mine actually on Elizabeth's side that's afraid of clowns. And I, being the brother-in-law that I am, will text her pictures of clowns every now and then. Um, so there's, there's those types of fears that we have, but there's also those deep down fears that only we really know. And when we, if we allow them to, they can really dominate our lives, can they not? We can take our fears and, and if we allow them to, they will overwhelm us and dominate everything that we do and the, the things that we, the way that we live and the way that we behave and so when, when we see that come up, when we experience these fears, we, we want to go in one or two different directions. We either try to avoid those fears and just ignore them, act like they're not there, and just try to separate ourselves from that fear in our lives, or we try to overcome it in some particular way. But what if we let it, if we let those fears, if we really look deep down inside of us, we, we find out what we're really afraid of, If we allow it to, it will do damage to our lives. It will do damage to our lives physically. It can do damage to our lives mentally and emotionally and spiritually. It can destroy relationships with people, and ultimately it will affect and damage our relationship with God. But this idea of fear is not just limited to us as Christians. If you look around at our culture, you look around our society, it is riddled with fear. All you need to do is scroll through Twitter for a day, And you will find example after example of fear. Watch the news. Spend any time of amount, any time or amount spent analyzing the behaviors of people. And you realize everything they're doing, much of what they're doing is just driven by this fear. There's global terrorism. There's conflicts in Russia. There's conflicts in China. What are things going to look like on a global stage? We've been dealing with the last two years of virus that has left many people afraid to engage and interact with other people. Parents have set up and structured their lives so that their kids are, what they feel, are perfectly safe. That they'll never come across any type of danger in their lives because they've set up these structures to allow them to be completely and totally safe. It even gets down to the the very core of the things that we eat. Well, you can't eat this diet because you'll probably die of a heart attack. Don't eat red meat, don't eat ribs, right Jackie? Don't eat ribs. Because if you eat, if you eat ribs, you could end up dying. So you gotta eat all healthy food. Don't eat sugar, sugar's really bad for you, right? Don't eat sugar. So, so go the diet option, diet, drink diet soda instead of the sugar soda. Oh wait, diet soda can kill you too. So, so, so there's all these things. Yeah, you, you come up with all these other things. Try this one, Stevia. That's probably bad for you too. So you got all of these different things. None of the very things that we eat. You can eat eggs this time. No, you can't eat eggs anymore. Then you can eat eggs again. It's all back and forth. And, and we realize that even in the things that we put into our bodies, there's so much uncertainty. 
And when we find uncertainty, cheesesteaks are great. There's nothing wrong with cheesesteaks. The one holy food in this world. The one holy food in the world, cheesesteaks. All right? We'll get that one settled. Ribs are also good. So when we think of all these things and we find ourselves with all of this uncertainty, what does it ultimately lead to? Fear. We become afraid. There's a sociologist, he's a professor in England. His name is Frank Ferretti. He is not a believer. He's not a Christian. Um, He's a humanist. So I can't vouch for everything that he says, but he's probably the author of, I want to say, two dozen books now on the idea of fear. He's the, the foremost mind. He spent his entire career on how fear affects our culture. How does fear interact with our culture? And he wrote a book in 2018 called How Fear Works, The Culture of Fear in the 21st Century. And he talks about this idea of the paradox of fear. And he's specifically speaking to the Western and really nails down into the American culture. And the paradox of fear is this. In America, we are the most prosperous and secure civilization that ever has been in the history of the world. That's just the reality. You just look at statistics, you look at all the different things. We are the most prosperous, secure nation in the world. And safety has become the holy grail of our society. Everything is about safety. That has been the reality for at least the last 20 years, if not more, in our country. And yet, despite all of that, every statistic that Ferretti looked at and has reviewed and all the sociologists review have determined that Despite all the prosperity, despite all the security, America is one of the most fearful civilizations that has ever lived. And that's a, that's a paradox for him. He says, you, you've established all of these securities. You've established the safest civilization you could possibly establish in the history of the entire world. And yet we are the most fearful nation. We're the most fearful people in the entire world. Freddie says that the root of this is moral confusion. That the root of this fearfulness in our society is moral confusion because as people no longer understand what is right and wrong, it leads to uncertainty, which leads to fear. And I think he has a point, but he doesn't go far enough. Because we think, if we think about what, what is the root of moral confusion, it's a lack of God. If you, if you remove and you take out the one who gives Morals, the one who is the definition of morality, what are you left with? You're left with not knowing what is right and what is wrong, which ultimately leads to uncertainty, which ultimately leads to fear. So when you strip God out of the culture, you're left with confusion, which ultimately leads to the society we have, which is riddled with fear. There's another individual, Bertrand Russell. Um, He is an atheist. And he wrote this in an essay titled, Why I Am Not a Christian. He says, religion is based primarily and mainly on fear. Fear is the parent to cruelty, and therefore it is no wonder that cruelty and religion has gone hand in hand. Science can help us get over this craven fear in which mankind has lived for so many generations. Science can teach us, and I think our own hearts can teach us, no longer to look around for an imaginary support no longer to invent allies in the sky, but rather to look to our own efforts here below to make this world a fit place to live in instead of the sort of the place that the churches in all these centuries have made it. 
So to summarize what Russell's saying, he's saying religion, belief in God, is driven by fear. So what we need to do is we need to break ourselves as a society, as a people, break ourselves away from this belief in God and instead look to science and then look internally to build a society that he says is fit to live in, one that is safe, one that is secure, one that is free from fear. So Russell wants to use science and human reason to build this utopia of sorts where everything is perfect. If you don't know who Bertrand Russell is, some of you may, some of you, I I doubt many of you do. He wrote this nearly 100 years ago, 1927. And I think our society effectively has done what he's claimed and said to do. The, The prescription that he gave for us to break ourselves away from God and look to science and look to ourselves in order to build this fit place to live, society has tried to do that. 100 years later, what do we find? Not a utopia, but an anxious and a fearful place. And if we dig another level deeper than that even, I think what we find is there is a connection between fear and faith. That where you have a lack of faith, that's where you have the most opportunity for growth in anxiety and growth in fear. Because fear grows best when there is unbelief. There's a story in the Gospels of Jesus and his disciples on a boat. And as they're, they're crossing this lake, there's a storm that comes up. And the way the Bible describes it is that these waves are actually crashing up over the boat. Jesus, meanwhile, is sleeping. He's, he's not paying attention to the storm. He is just asleep. And so the disciples come panicked, coming to him, crying out, how can you sleep? Like, there's a storm. Do something. Does anyone remember Jesus' words? Oh, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? There's this connection between faith and fear that we're going to explore a bit. And I've gone through a whole bunch of topics, and I don't have that much time, so I had to breeze through them really quickly. But I want us to just walk away, having talked through a number of those things, just to say... This, com- this, this concept is complex. Fear is not just some simple thing we're going to figure out in 45 minutes on a Sunday evening when everybody else is thinking about the Super Bowl. Although it's a great, it is a relevant topic because all of us are experiencing some level of FOMO. Do you know what that is? The fear of missing out. <laughs> so it's a relevant topic because all of us are like, all right, we got 45 minutes till the game. Let's go. I don't want to miss out. I got nachos to get to, I got ribs to eat, other things, all that stuff. But I want to run through that just for us to understand the complexity of this topic. Because that's, that's at a very different level, and because that influences and feeds into how we handle and deal with fear in our personal levels. Because in our own hearts, where we find a lack of faith is where we find fear. Where there's unbelief inside of us, where we lack a trust in God, we find fear. And that takes many different forms. That can take the form of, as simple as a six-year-old who probably shouldn't be watching horror movies... All the way to the way that we experience and deal with fear in our lives. All the different things that we're afraid of. 
very much come about. And when we analyze them, we look at them, it ultimately boils down to there is some level of a lack of trust here. That there's this connection between faith and fear. So what I want us to do is just walk through these, these different ideas of fear. Because when we look at Scripture, there are two different types of fear that Scripture paints for us. The first one is an unhealthy, or we could even say a sinful fear. That is driven out of a heart that lacks faith. And there is a second type of fear that we could call a good or a righteous fear. And it's namely called the fear of God that we're going to look at in the latter half. And I want to do that by spending a little time in Romans 8. We've already examined these verses, but I think it's helpful to come back to them. Specifically Romans 8, 15. It says here, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. What Paul's doing in this verse is that he's answering a question. He's answering the question of why is it that those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God? That's that's basically the summary in question form of verse 14. So verse 15 is giving the answer. He's saying, "Why, why is it that those who are being led by the Spirit are the children of God? It's because God has not given a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but he's given a spirit of adoption. Imagine with me for a moment of reality where God was more interested, his objective, his priority was not producing children, but producing slaves. Just picture that, just picture that reality for me, where he says, you know what, I want, I want a million slaves And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my spirit and I'm going to force that upon them. And what I'm going to produce out of that is a group of people who I don't care about, who are not happy, but as long as they do what I want them to do, that's all that matters. We can imagine that reality, but the beautiful thing is that God doesn't do that. If you read the verse, it says he has not given us a spirit of slavery. But what has he given us? He's given us a spirit of adoption as sons, as children of God. Why? So that we can cry out to him, Abba, Father. The fact that the institution of slavery is even a thing is a, is a terrible thing. But if you've ever read or seen documentaries, studied the history of slavery in America, or even the slavery that we experience today in our world, specifically through human trafficking and sex slavery. If you've read anything about them and you've heard the stories of what people have endured, you can't help but think that, that fear, the level of fear is so intense. They don't know the, the moment that they will die. They're fearful of the time that they step out of line and, and their slave master puts them back into place. They're fearful of the time the next that they will be pushed off on someone to be sexually assaulted and raped again. The, the level of fear is something that you and I probably don't fully experience. We don't fully know because we haven't experienced all of that. But when you think about that and you catch a glimpse of that, you can see the fear that comes from slavery is so intense. And yet the God that we have didn't say, I want you as a slave. He says, I want you as a child. I want you as a son. I want you as a daughter. I don't want you just so that you do what I want you to do. I want you because I want you to be a part of my life and I want you to enjoy me. 
So instead of a spirit of slavery that produces in us fear, we have a spirit of adoption that produces in us sonship, that produces in us children of God. And ultimately, he gives us a father. The solution to fear in the world ultimately is God as our father. That's the solution to fear. That's what Paul's saying. He says there's a, there's a difference between those who are given a spirit of slavery that produces fear and given a spirit of sonship that produces a father. So if you are a believer, if you've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, those fears you face every day, they're not met by a slave master who wants to beat you into submission, who wants to make you more afraid, but those fears you face every day are met by a loving father who wants you to cry to him, Abba. The word cry Paul uses, it carries an emotional aspect to it. It's actually the same word that Jesus uses when he's on the cross when it says that he cries and gives up the spirit. There's this emotional element to this. It's not just an affirmation of a doctrine. It's not just affirming, okay, God is father. That's something, that's something that we check off on our doctrinal checklist. But this is an emotional thing. It's saying, Jesus, God, I need you not as only the sustainer of the world, which he is, we acknowledge that, but I need you because you are the sustainer of me. I am broken and I need help. I am stupid and I need wisdom. I am scared and I need you. That's, that's the idea of this, that I am going to cry out to my father because I can trust him. And when I go to him, I'm not going to be met with a whip. I'm going to be met with the open arms of my savior. And this can be a challenging concept in our broken world because we live in a place where many of our fathers were not affectionate people. Many of our fathers were not people that we could go to and cry to and find help. Instead, when we cried out, we found hostility, we found abandonment, we found addictions, we found indifference, coldness, anger. You know, one, one of the fruits of fatherlessness, I believe, is fear. It's not the only reason we struggle with fear, but it is one of the results of fatherlessness in our society. That the person that should be in their lives to care for and protect them is absent. And so when there is uncertainty, there is fear. When there isn't a person to go to that we know will care for us and protect us, it ultimately breeds and produces fear in our lives. And so we seek to compensate for that. We seek to overcome those things in our lives. And so we compensate in a couple of different ways. We've already talked about a little bit of them, but we, we draw away from anything that's fearful. We avoid anything that we're afraid of because we don't know who we can rely on to actually help us when we are afraid because the person that we should have been able to rely on hasn't been there. Second way we do that is we kind of put on a tough skin. We realize early on that we don't have the people in our lives that we should have. And so we, we put on this exterior that just wants to be somewhat intimidating because we don't want the fear to come into our lives. So we put on a tough exterior shell. Meanwhile, on the inside, we're ravaged by fear. I think you see this clearly with specifically young children. When you see young children who bully other kids, 
nine times out of 10, if you looked and analyzed those situations, it ultimately comes back to some level of dysfunction in the home, and it usually involves some level of dysfunction between the child and their father. And that produces a child who is bullying other people because they don't know how to compensate for the fact that they don't have a father in their lives who's caring for them, who's teaching them how to do these things and how to live well. So life has pushed us to compensate for these fears we have, but the true reality of a Christian is that we do have a father. For all of the earthly fathers that have failed us, we have a heavenly father. That when we come to him and we cry to him, he's never hostile with us. He's never going to abandon us. He's never indifferent. He's never too occupied with other things. He was always there for us. So our lives now as Christians are not dictated by the action or the inaction of our earthly fathers, but our lives are dictated by the overwhelming truth that we are children of God. That is the driving force of our lives as Christians. He's not given us a spirit of slavery to live in fear, but he's given us a spirit of adoption to live as children. Just a quick side note for dads, hopeful future dads. Your relationship with your children is so important. And this isn't to diminish the mothers in the room. the, The mothers in the room have an incredible responsibility raising their children, developing their children. And the best situation for a child is a home that has a father and a mother who are there caring for them. But since we're on the topic of fathers, the role of the earthly father played in a child's life in their development, in their maturation, is so incredibly important. And so one of the things to do, simple thing to do, engage with your child. Turn off the television, turn off the phone, leave the work things at work and spend time with your child, learning what they are like, teaching them how to navigate a crazy world because there are incredible amounts of fear that are going to come into a child's life at a very young age through all of their experiences. And the best thing that you can do for them is to help them walk through how to deal with those things. Because not only are you helping your child mature, but you are actually living out what God is doing for us. You're living out not only your responsibility as a father, but you're showing and you're modeling for your child what the care and the compassion and the love of God is as our father. One other practical point before we start to head into some other elements of fear coming from chapter 8. If you look at the context... Let's try to get to it. Yeah, there we go. If you look at the context, specifically verse 13, it says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's given to us through the gospel, think of the things that we've learned through Romans already, justification, union with Christ, all those aspects and doctrines of the gospel we've discussed, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the body. What that is, is it's starving our flesh. It's starving our sinful flesh. It's killing our sin. So it's through the power of the Spirit that we kill our sin. And this is the same Spirit that verse 15 and onward testify to the reality that we are adopted into the family of God. You know, the Bible describes the Christian life as a war. 
That we're warring with our flesh. We're warring with our sin. So in this battle and in this fight, if we connect verses 13 and verse 15, we don't fight this battle with sin. We don't kill our sin in fear. We're not, we're not afraid that we're going to lose. We're not fighting scared. Instead, we know with certainty what the outcome of this fight is going to be. God has already won the victory for us in Christ. This battle with sin is not done afraid, but it's done in the shadow of the cross. And it's in the cross where we find Christ who has sacrificed himself for us on our behalf. So we know that we won't lose. With every battle with sin that we face, we know we can do it confident. We don't don't have to be afraid that we're going to lose or we're not going to be able to overcome and conquer and kill this sin in our lives. If we do it through the power of the Spirit, we will do it. It will happen. Because the Father has already won that victory for us. So as believers, we have to recognize that our, those unhealthy fears in our lives, those things that we wrestle with, the things that we, we struggle with, the things that we're afraid of, ultimately do not define us. They don't dictate who we are. They don't dictate how we live. Instead, as we've been talking about, we've been given a spirit to live as the children of God. And that means, verse 17, it says, we are heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. That's what we have. Not a spirit of slavery to fall into fear, but a spirit of adoption to be his children, crying, Abba, Father, which means we are already one. We are his heirs. We have, given, we have been given all things for life and godliness. And we can, we can rest then in the love of God. Verse 35 and 37 of Romans 8 tells us, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Think about that list. All things to be afraid of. All things to be fearful of. Suffering, trials, a lack of food, a lack of clothing, a lack of shelter, even death. And what does Paul say? He says, will any of these separate us from the love of God? Verse 37, no. For in all these things we are more than conquerors. A couple of practical things. I already said that, but we're going to continue with the practical things. Then we'll move on to a good and a healthy fear. If you wrestle and you struggle with fear in your life, remember that you are not alone. Each of us has our own fears. Each of us battles fear every single day. So you are not alone. They may look different. We may experience them differently, but they're all, they're all present in our lives. Second thing. Know that you have people to talk to, especially if you are a member of this church. Even if you're not a member of this church, you're like, I need to talk to somebody because I'm afraid about a lot of things. Come and talk to me. We can talk. But if you, if you are a member, a regular attender, if you're part of Eternal City Church, you have people you can talk to. One of the worst things we can do when we're battling fear in our lives is to isolate ourselves from other people is to, to keep everything internal and not talk about what's going on in our lives. So rather than, rather than seeking to avoid the conversation, I would say, talk to people. 
We have different avenues to do that. You can talk with one of the elders of the church. We have gospel-centered communities that meet weekly where you can engage with and talk with people. And even if you're not comfortable talking in a large group, you can interact with someone there that you can say, hey, let's grab a cup of coffee and we can go talk about some different things. Ladies, you have a women's Bible study now, which is great. There's an opportunity there to, to talk about what's really going on in your lives. Where are the fears? What, what are you afraid of? What are those things that are that continually coming up that you're battling with and fighting against? And I would say this too. Even if you're not comfortable talking in one of those settings and you'd rather talk with someone outside of the church, we know people that you can talk with. So don't, don't isolate yourself from other people. Be willing to talk. Be willing to have a conversation. Third practical thing, don't run away from God. It sounds so obvious, and yet it's so easy when we're in the midst of fear and we're in the midst of battling these things in our lives that we just want to isolate ourselves from God. We want to run from him. Why? Because we're afraid that he's going to be angry with us. We're afraid that we're not, we're not strong enough to handle what God will have for us, and yet what we've already seen is that God is a loving father. He's not there to beat us up. But when we're dealing with all of these things, we just want to run into the darkness. John Bunyan is a, um, is a Puritan writer, wrote in the 1600s, wrote Pilgrim's Progress, if you're familiar with that. He also wrote another book um, shortly after he wrote that called A Treatise on the Fear of God. Captivating title, I know. That's just what the Puritans did. They wrote like very obvious titles. There's nothing interesting about their titles. But in this book, he actually walks through, there's a section where he gives, I think it's about 10 questions. And he asks these questions, and they're, they're pretty much all similar, but they're all dealing with the, the idea of fear. And he says, and I'm going to update the language slightly, because again, he wrote in the 1600s. Does your fear cause you to not pray? Does your fear cause you to not trust in the promises of God in salvation? Does your fear prevent you from enjoying God's word? Does your fear prevent you from enjoying God's people? He asks this series of questions. There's about 10 of them. And at the very end of it, he, he kind of assumes all the answers to this are yes. That in your fear, you're, you're not enjoying God. You're not trusting God. You're, you're not praying like you should. And he says this in response. He says, how much of God do you think is in these answers? None at all. Because these are not his doing. That's preventing you from praying, preventing you from enjoying, preventing you from engaging with other people. These are not his doing. Do you not see the hand of the devil in them? Satan preys on our fears. When we are afraid, he pushes us and pushes us to distance ourselves from God because he knows where we will end up ultimately as slaves to our fear. He would rather see us in darkness and he would rather see us not going to God because he knows when we go to God that fear will be exposed and Satan's plan will be destroyed. He won't have us bound up in fear. Instead, we will be freed from that fear and ultimately we can cry out to our God who is our father. I mentioned there's two kinds of fears. The one is the unhealthy, sinful fear that ultimately produces slavery. The second 
is <clears throat> what we would call a good or a right fear, and I think we could rightly call the fear of God. When I say fear of God, many of you, you may have a concept of what this is. You may be thinking it is something like reverence or respect. Um, maybe the idea of awe comes into play. The fear of God is because he is awesome. He's majestic, so we are in awe of him. Some of you may be concentrating on that word fear and thinking, well, it's, you know, we're, we're afraid of God. That there's a reason to be fearful of him. And all of them have some, some semblance of truth to them in some way. There is a reverence and a respect we should have for God. That is true. He is awesome, so we should be in all of him. For non-Christians, non-believers, they should be afraid of God because what they will experience from God is wrath. But ultimately, I don't think, as we evaluate Scripture, we're going to look at a few passages, that, that all of those words are insufficient in describing what truly is the fear of God. And I'll readily admit, fear is probably not the best word. Um, not because it's poorly constructed based on what theologians have put together, based on what's in Scripture. Scripture, you can go through a lot of the Old Testament, says fear of God, fear of the Lord. It's just our society has taken that word and put so much meaning into it that we can't really understand it anymore. But it's the best word we have because it's what the Bible uses. So we'll try to reframe what this idea is because I think it does capture reverence, respect, awe, and for the unbeliever, fearfulness. But my proposition for us tonight is this. The fear of God is a way of speaking to two things. The believer's intense love for God and the believer's intense enjoyment for all that God is. I think we'll, we'll look at a few passages of Scripture that I think will kind of flesh that out for us. But oftentimes when we think of the concepts of fear and love, they're mutually exclusive, right? You don't usually put those two things together. You think of them as opposite ends of a spectrum. What I love is not the same thing that I fear, and what I fear is not necessarily the same thing that I love. Maybe they're opposite sides of the same coin in a way. But the Bible paints a picture that fear and love are so closely intertwined. Psalm 145, 19 and 20. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. David, in writing this, these are, these are parallel phrases in the Hebrew in that poem. He, he's making a parallel statement that those who fear him and those who love him are the same people. Deuteronomy 6, pretty popular passage. Um, this is Moses kind of giving the, I would say, summary of the law to the Israelites. He says, now this is the commandment, the statutes, the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. Why? That you may fear the Lord your God. So he's, he's giving them this law that they may fear God. And then what does he say? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. So there is this connection between fear and love that Scripture gives. Moses isn't saying, well, here's how you fear God and here's how you love God. Rather, the fear and the love of God are used here together. And what I want us to make clear is that 
fearing God and loving God are not at tension with one another. We, we wrestle with that a lot. It's not as though we, in our love for God, we draw near to him, but then in our fear of God, we pull away from him. They're not mutually exclusive things. It's not as though we, we love God for his goodness, but then we fear God for his greatness. True and good and right fear is one that recognizes that that fear is to love God. Charles Spurgeon, he's a famous preacher from the 1800s, he puts it this way. He says, Right fear falls on its face before the Lord, but it falls leaning toward the Lord. Right fear falls on its face before the Lord, but it falls leaning toward the Lord. It's such a helpful idea. Because everyone is going to fall on their face before the Lord. But for those who love him, for those who are his, they will fall on their face leaning into God. And those who are not, who are unbelievers, they will fall on their face in fear, cowering before God. There's a huge difference between how we fall on our face before God. So our fear of God and our love of God are not opposed to each other, but true fear of God is true love for God in all that he is. Uh, There's a passage that Eugene read for us, Isaiah 11, 1 through 3. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be the fear of the Lord. This passage is talking about Jesus. This is, this is pointing to Christ. He is the shoot from the stump of Jesse, the branch from his roots. And what does it say at the end there? His delight shall be the fear of the Lord. The greatest relationship of love present in all the universe for all of time is between God the Father and God the Son. It is an eternal perfect love. And what Isaiah is telling us that in this eternal perfect love, Jesus is delighting in the fear of the Lord. So if, if Jesus' love for the Father and Jesus' fear of God were two different things, that's impossible because his perfect love is combined with his delight in the fear of the Lord. So you can't have love for God without fear of God. They're, they're the exact same thing. And it, it is somewhat crazy for us to think about because we don't think of fear in those terms. Fear and love just don't mix in our minds sometimes, but what Scripture is pointing to is that fear and love, probably the two greatest emotions we can experience, are actually working in relationship together. And when they, when they are expressed toward God for all that he is, we love him and we fear him for all that he is. And just as the fear of God defines love for God, remember what my original proposition was, that the fear of God is a way of speaking of our intense love for him, which we've seen, but also our intense enjoyment for all that he is. Proverbs 28, 14. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. 
Nehemiah 111. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servant who delights to fear your name. Psalm verse 2, Psalm 211. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. We do feel a tension here because in our culture, fear is bad and happiness is good. But the true fear of God is, is from the heart of a believer and it is one of joy. And this is true because the, the fear that we experience of God is not one that is dangerous or evil for the Christian. The fear that we have of God is not one that is thought to be, we're going to get crushed by him. Rather, we know because of what we've seen in Romans 8, we have a father who's not going to crush us, but who's going to care for us. And so we fear him not because we're cowering and afraid. He's not some tyrant. He's not a despot. We don't come groveling at the feet of Jesus. Instead, we fear him bowing down toward him. Not, not cowering away from him, but actually going toward him. And we do it in joy. The basis of our fear of God doesn't come because he is a danger to us, but it comes because he is perfection and he is beauty and we can enjoy him forever. So what I want us to walk away with as we close is, as I said, God is no tyrant. He's not a slave master. He's not trying to suck every ounce of happiness and joy from us. Rather, all that God is, his goodness, his greatness, his mercy, his grace, his love, his holiness, his justice, everything that is God is to be loved, is to be enjoyed, and is to be feared. Because they're all the same thing. So when you are afraid, you can run to God, not timidly, not afraid we're going to get smacked around. We don't grovel before God, but we bow before him, leaning toward him as the one who's freed us from our sinful fear, and he's given us a good and a righteous fear in him, in its place. And this is ultimately a possibility because God has gifted us, as Romans 8 says, a spirit of adoption. The same Jesus who delights the fear in God is the same Jesus who gave up his life so that we can have joy in God. And that's ultimately why we celebrate communion. We celebrate communion together to recognize and remember the death of Jesus, that he sacrificed himself broken body, shed blood on a cross for us. And it's through Christ's death in our place that he frees us from our sinful fear and he gives us this good and this righteous fear. And we can celebrate that. We get to celebrate that. It's a privilege. So we do this every week. We take communion, remembering our Savior. And I would invite you, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian here this evening, I would invite you to join in with us as we celebrate communion together. Um, we're going to sing a song as the worship team comes up, and then we will, um, I'll come back up and lead us in communion to finish up our evening. We're no longer slaves to fear, but we are the children of God. We are holding a cracker and juice, symbols of the broken body and shed blood of Christ, who has freed us from our sin, who has freed us from our fear, because of the work that Christ did on the cross. So it's a privilege that as one church we celebrate the fact that we are no longer slaves 
to fear, but we are the children of God. Let's take together the body and the blood of Jesus. I want to finish our time this evening by reading one verse from Galatians 5. It said, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Go in peace. I love you. Thank you.